Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 12, Oberfell v. Hodges. This is a case where the Supreme Court said that every state must recognize same-sex marriages. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter at BlueCarp and on Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. We can continue discussion there. Let me know what you think or if you have any comments or questions. I'd love to hear from you. Obergefell is the 2014 opinion where the Supreme Court said that every state had to recognize same-sex marriages. Now, what's my personal opinion? I don't care who you marry. It's none of my business. Unfortunately, the government thinks it is its business. And as libertarians know, it shouldn't be. And the only reason this is an issue at all is because the government decided it was going to officially acknowledge marriages. It did not always. It's a relatively new thing. The court discusses the history of marriage in its opinion. And I've also got a link to a New York Times article that uh, deals with some of the history of marriage and points out that governments didn't recognize marriage until relatively recently. And think about this. John and Abigail Adams didn't have government permission to marry. Neither did George and Martha Washington. If you had even mentioned to them that they needed government permission to get married, they'd have looked at you like you were an alien. The concept was completely foreign to them. But now, of course, it's permeated every aspect of society because of government regulation. First, who wrote the court's decision? It was a 5-4 majority, so it was a close one. Kennedy wrote the opinion, and he was joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. There are four different dissents. And they're joined by one another mostly. Chief Justice Roberts wrote a dissent. He was joined by Scalia and Thomas. Scalia wrote a different, separate dissent. And he was joined by Thomas. Thomas also wrote a separate dissent on his own. He was joined by Scalia. And then Alito wrote a dissent. He was joined by Scalia and Thomas. All right, you know I like to get into who these people are. So who was Obergefell? We'll let the court explain. They wrote, Petitioner James Obergefell, a plaintiff in the Ohio case. And let me stop there because there are multiple cases coming from different states that were all consolidated for the Supreme Court to rule on. For whatever reason, Obergefell's case was the first one. So his name is the one that we all know. So Obergefell is a plaintiff in the Ohio case. He met John Arthur over two decades ago. They fell in love and started a life together, establishing a lasting, committed relation. In 2011, however, Arthur was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. The court notes that this debilitating disease is progressive with no known cure. Two years ago, Obergefell and Arthur decided to commit to one another, resolving to marry before Arthur died. To fulfill their mutual promise, they traveled from Ohio to Maryland, where same-sex marriages were legal. It was difficult for Arthur to move, and so the couple were wed inside a medical transport plane as it remained on the tarmac in Baltimore. Three months later, Arthur died. Ohio law does not permit Obergefell to be listed as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. By statute, they must remain strangers even in death. A state-imposed separation Obergefell claims hurtful for the rest of time. He brought suit so he could be recognized as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. Who was Hodges? Hodges is nothing exciting. We've talked about some of these cases before where it's just some government official who happens to be the person that has to be sued. That's who Richard Hodges was. He was the director of the Ohio Department of Health, and that department was the one that would not put Obergefell on the death certificate as a surviving spouse. So he's just a government functionary who wound up with his name on the case. And for a second, let's discuss Christian opposition to this case, which was largely where the opposition came from, and it's mentioned in the dissents. 
Why would a Christian care what the government says about marriage? According to a Christian, and I grew up Southern Baptist, marriage is a sacred ceremony, right? Between two believers of a particular religion in a house of worship of that particular religion, performed by a clergy member of that particular religion, who is obtained by God, who is worshipped by that particular religion. But this Christian argument is that that marriage, that sacred religious ceremony, isn't legal unless a low-level government clerk somewhere provides a stamp of approval down at the secular courthouse for a small fee. That's absurd. That is really sacrilegious. That my religious marriage isn't okay unless it's approved by the government. The New York Times article asked the question, why do people, gay or straight, need the state's permission to marry? For most of Western history, they didn't because marriage was a private contract between two families. The parents' agreement to the match, not the approval of church or state, was what confirmed its validity. For 16 centuries, Christianity also defined the validity of a marriage on the basis of a couple's wishes. If two people claim that they had exchanged marital vows, even out alone by the haystack, the Catholic Church accepted that they were validly married. Not until the 16th century did European states begin to require that marriages be performed under legal auspices. In part, this was an attempt to prevent unions between young adults whose parents opposed their match. So this was to keep kids from getting married without their parental permission. And this was only the noblemen, the lords and the ladies who cared about this. And the lords and the ladies were the government in the monarchy, at least some level of government, right? And even then, when they started to require government approval of these marriages, no one cared who the peasants were marrying. They could just get married and they were married and the church didn't care. Church was, okay, you guys said you're married? Okay, you're married. And that was it. The New York Times article continues, but governments began relying on marriage licenses for a new purpose as a way of distributing resources to dependents. For example, the Social Security Act provided survivors benefits with proof of marriage. And that, my friends, is the real issue. Government benefits, not the private agreement between two people to live as a married unit. You don't need government approval for a private agreement or a religious agreement. You only need the government involved because they're going to be handing out largesse based upon whether or not you are married. No one has ever been denied the right to marry, if there is such a thing. People were denied state benefits that went to married people, yet the, quote, right to marry is what the majority bases its opinion on. But what the government is doing in these cases that refuse to recognize gay marriages, they're denying privileges like those social security benefits, but they're not denied a marriage. They're denied a state-sanctioned marriage, not a marriage between two private individuals. That's an important distinction. Everything was fine until the government decided it had to get into recognizing marriages. And a large reason that happened in the United States was because after the Civil War, some states decided they didn't want to have any interracial marriages. So whereas before, hey, if you were married in a church or if you just said you were married, you're married. Government didn't care. But once they decided to, to stop interracial marriages, the married couple had to go down to the clerk's office in the secular courthouse get looked at by a low-level clerk who had to approve that the two of you looked similar enough to get married. And if you met that person's criteria and otherwise filled out the paperwork and paid with the 10 bucks or whatever it was, then he would give you the government seal of approval. The majority discusses a 1986 case, Bowers v. Hardwick, which upheld the criminalization of certain homosexual acts, which, by the way, can be performed by opposite sex partners, but that rarely gets mentioned, and that's all I will mention of it. Now, of course, no consensual sexual acts between adults should ever be subject to a criminal sanction. It goes to the simple concept of self-ownership, which I consistently submit is part of the natural law, which is 
mentioned in the Declaration of Independence and the foundation upon which this government was based. Bowers, which said states could make those acts illegal, was overturned in 2003 by Lawrence v. Texas. And I just want to mention this because of the history of uh, how homosexuals have been treated in this, in this country. From 1986 to 2003, the cases were reversed. And I mention this because it shows the concept of stare decisis, which is Latin for to stand by things decided. And what that means is if the court is looking at a case and this issue has been raised before and the Supreme Court has ruled a certain way, the current court is supposed to give deference to what has already happened before to stand by things decided, stare decisis. But that's ignored, like it was in Lawrence v. Texas when they overturned Bowers v. Hardwick, is readily ignored when the Supreme Court wants to ignore it. And as I mentioned before, when something is wrong legally, when the Supreme Court has gotten something wrong, it's wrong, regardless of how many times it's been wrong or for how long. If an early math pioneer got something wrong, there's no stare decisis in math. In math and physics and other disciplines of actual science, realizing something is wrong is a good thing thing. That's progress. We're going to fix our mistake. It should also be in jurisprudence. And that's why when they want to change something, they disregard that concept. If they don't want to change it, they call it stare decisis. In Obergefell, the court justifies its decision by saying the courts must exercise reasoned judgment in identifying fundamental rights that the state cannot infringe. They look to history and tradition as a guide. The right of self-ownership, in my view, natural rights, answers these questions without needing to rely on the court's quote-unquote reasoned judgment. Is there much scarier than relying on the court's reasoned judgment to determine what your rights are? What is the objective basis for the court's reasoned judgment? There is none. The dissents bring this up and criticize it, and Scalia mocks it. You have your rights because you're born, not because the Supreme Court says you do. Again, the right to marry is not the same thing as the right to get government benefits from a government-sanctioned marriage. The right to marry is like the right to eat. You don't need government permission to do either. But if the government is going to give people cheese from the reserves and they deny it to homosexuals because they're homosexual, the government is not denying them the right to eat. The government's just not giving them the government cheese that they're giving to everyone else. They're being denied a government benefit. That's what's unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, which I agree with. But it's not the denial of the right to get married or of the right to eat, in my example. In order to bolster its case, the majority mentions how intimate the decision is to get married to someone. They call it the most intimate decision an individual can make. So again, that's not really an argument in favor of government regulation, is it? Something is so intimate and private and personal that, to me, argues against the government being involved in it. But the Supreme Court thinks that's a reason for the government to be involved in it. It reminds me of the Doug Stanhope joke. He said, if marriage didn't exist, would you invent it? Would you go, baby, this stuff we got together. It's so good. We got to get the government in on this stuff. We can't just share this commitment twinst us. We need judges and lawyers involved in this stuff, baby. It's hot. And Stanhope nails it. Of course, his delivery is much funnier. The court goes on to discuss how same-sex couples are denied the constellation of benefits that the states have linked to marriage. And that's the entire actual point. It's the only point. The state-granted benefits are mentioned a few times by the majority, but it's not singled out as being what is actually deprived. The government benefits are being deprived by the government refusing to acknowledge same-sex marriages, not the marriage right itself. Now, the court bases its decision on a denial of due process 
and a denial of equal protection under the 14th Amendment. In that part, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause makes sense when we focus on those benefits granted. Once the state gets involved, it can't deny equal protection, equal benefits. As we mentioned, the state does not need to be involved, and it shouldn't be. Why is the government incentivizing marriage? And that's what they're doing when they give benefits to married people that unmarried people don't get, or people in marriages the government doesn't recognize. They do that because of social planning. The government at any level should not be social planning individual private relationships any more than it should be centrally planning the economy. Alas, it does both. The very first line of the majority opinion written by Kennedy is, quote, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach. I know you're getting tired of me talking about this, but the Constitution actually does not promise liberty. It promises to not infringe on the liberty you already have. Liberty is not bequeathed by the government. Largesse is bequeathed by the government. And this is an important distinction because it changes the way you look at the entire Constitution and the entire way you're going to determine whether or not something is constitutional or not. It's a foundational point that our Supreme Court has all but forgotten. And it's good whenever they even mention the Ninth or Tenth Amendments. Even if they don't really rely on them, just mentioning them is now like a, good, a big deal. Nevertheless, in this case, the court answered two questions. Does the 14th Amendment require states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples? They said yes. And then must states recognize same-sex marriages performed in a different state? Yes. Now, Kennedy gets all poetic in laying out the history of marriage. Now, check this out. This is from his opinion. From their beginning to their most recent page, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent importance of marriage. The lifelong union of a man and a woman always has promised nobility and dignity to all persons without regard to their station in life. Marriage is sacred to those who live by their religions and offers unique fulfillment to those who find meaning in the secular realm. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone. For a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. Rising from the most basic human needs, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. Okay, thanks, Justice Kennedy. Nothing described in that passage, nothing in there, requires the government sanction. Nothing in it requires the government at all. And this points out the hubris of all government. Good things like nobility and dignity and fulfillment that Kennedy talks about, they believe those things need the government to make sure that people can enjoy those things. That without government, no nobility, no dignity, no fulfillment is possible. It's absurd. Kennedy goes on to quote Cicero, the first bond of society is marriage, next children, and then the family. But what Kennedy does not mention is that society is not synonymous with government. Far too many people think that if government doesn't do something, society doesn't do it. And that's absurd. Again, you just look around and see how ridiculous that is. Kennedy continues, it is the enduring importance of marriage that underlies the petitioner's contentions. That's the plaintiffs who want to get married but can't. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners, same-sex couples, seek for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. Okay, this is one of those places where they acknowledge my point, at least tacitly, marriage is needed for its privileges. Exactly. That's privileges provided by the government, which they don't need to provide. The government has just made a policy that married people get certain things that unmarried people don't. And that's that social planning. The court then touched on kind of the history of homosexuals and how they've been treated in the law. Kennedy wrote, This court first gave detailed consideration to the legal status of homosexuals in Bowers v. Hardwick. We just talked about that. There it upheld the constitutionality of a Georgia law deemed to criminalize certain homosexual acts. Ten years later, in Romer v. Evans, 
1996, the court invalidated an amendment to Colorado's constitution. That amendment sought to foreclose any branch or political subdivision of the state of Colorado from protecting persons against discrimination based on sexual orientation. Then in 2003, the Supreme Court overruled Bowers, holding that laws making same-sex intimacy a crime demean the lives of homosexual persons. The court points out that also in 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage for all federal law purposes as, quote, only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. Now, we should all know that the feds have zero constitutional authority to regulate marriage at all, and the dissents mentioned this, but the Republicans didn't care in 1996. The Tenth Amendment doesn't mean as much as making sure those damn homos can't marry, right, Bob Barr? Bob Barr was one of the leaders in pushing DOMA through, the Defense of Marriage Act, and I have to give my penance for being one of the people that voted for him at the 2008, I think it was 2008, Denver Libertarian Party convention. I didn't know any better, and I am doing my penance for that. But then, after Congress did pass DOMA, the Supreme Court invalidated it to the extent it barred the federal government from treating same-sex marriages as valid, even when they were lawful in the state where they were licensed. So DOMA said that any federal largesse or any federal government program that depended on being married to get that largesse, the federal government would not give that largesse if people were in a same-sex marriage, even if they were married in a state that recognized it. For example, like Social Security benefits. The court notes that after years of discussions and litigation and legislation, etc., etc., the states are divided on the issue of same-sex marriage. And as far as I'm concerned, that by itself is okay. It's okay for the states to have different laws. There's zero need for uniformity in issues that are not the proper role of the federal government, like marriage. And again, the issue isn't about being allowed to marry. It's about getting the government benefits of being married or the government benefits that are you're eligible for if you're married. If the government gets out of the marriage business like it was for the most of recorded history, the problem is solved, and it's solved for the better. The court goes on in striking down all of the bans of same-sex marriages in different states. It says, under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due press of law. The fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Ah, my skin crawls. This point never ends, but it keeps coming up in all of these cases. The Bill of Rights doesn't list rights that the Constitution grants the people. It lists rights the Congress will not violate, but it gets worse. This is like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, and, the, and Saw movies, because this language is so scary. Quote, the identification and protection of fundamental rights is an enduring part of the judicial duty to interpret the Constitution. It requires courts to exercise reasoned judgment, as we mentioned, in identifying interests of the person so fundamental that the state must accord them its respect. That is just frightening. This reasoned judgment of nine lifetime tenured super legislatures, not even nine, just five of the nine, we don't have to determine on their reasoned judgment. We shouldn't have to rely upon this reasoned judgment. I'm using air quotes for reasoned judgment. The dissent kind of mocks some of this too, or at least one or two of the dissents does. We don't need that reasoned judgment of five people out of nine. You just need to use the concept of natural rights, natural law, which I'd submit is the same thing as the right of self-ownership. You decide what you do with your life as long as you're not hurting somebody else. No victim, no crime. If there's no victim, there's no crime. There's no authority to regulate it because the Ninth and Tenth Amendments reserve every right that hasn't been specifically listed as a power the federal government can legitimately use. Everything that's not given to the federal government as legitimate authority, as an enumerated power in Article 1, Section 8, everything else is still a right 
belonging to everyone. It is explicit in the Constitution, in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, and elsewhere. So no, we don't need this reasoned judgment of five of nine super legislators in black robes. The court went on, The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the Fourteenth Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions, and so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning, end quote. No, that's just horribly incorrect. The natural right of self-ownership takes care of all of these potential future questions about, quote, the extent of freedom. And the, dis- the dissents mock this entrusted to future generations concept. That's pretty much saying that the Constitution is a living document and means whatever future generations decide it means. That's why it's frightening. Whatever your policy beliefs, even if they're moral, upright, and just, they do not justify rewriting the Constitution for those ends. Because if the Constitution can be rewritten by five people, even for good ends, it can just as easily be rewritten by a different set of five people for nefarious purposes. The Constitution has an amendment process. It doesn't include the Supreme Court's revisions by its reasoned judgment via a written opinion. Court notes that over time and in other contexts, the court has reiterated that the right to marry is fundamental under the due process clause. Again, government's not needed to get married. It's only needed to provide some benefit, which is the real question. If you're going to let these folks who are married get something, you have to give it to everyone who's married, whether or not they're in a same-sex marriage. Court says that decisions concerning marriage are among the most intimate that an individual can make. Again, I mentioned that, but let's make sure the government is there to assist you in making those most intimate decisions and making sure the government approves of those intimate decisions because you can't make those intimate decisions on your own. It's absurd. It's frightening. Then the Supreme Court gets kind of maudlin. Kennedy gets kind of maudlin. This is, well, here's what he said. Marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. It offers the hope of companionship and understanding and assurance that while both still live, there will be someone to care for them. Okay, thanks, Kennedy, for for that depressing thought. But none of that requires a stamp of approval from that low-level government clerk. It only requires two people. Do we really want the government to solve the problem of a lonely person calling out only to find no one there? No, we don't want that. It's just ridiculous. Court goes on, says, while the states are in general free to vary the benefits they confer on all married couples, they have throughout our history made marriage the basis for an expanding list of government rights, benefits, and responsibilities. The benefits the states confer on married couples. Again, the Supreme Court is tacitly recognizing my point, although they just kind of gloss over it. They make my point whenever they recognize that a valid marriage under state law is a significant status for over a thousand provisions of federal law. That's where the equal protection problem is. It's not an issue of saying you can't get married. It's saying you can't get all these a thousand benefits or a thousand provisions don't apply to you or they apply in a different way. So the court gets into the due process clause and the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. The gay marriage issue seems to me to be more pertinent to this equal protection analysis than the due process analysis. The Supreme Court's majority opinion says both apply because anyone can get married, but not all married people get the same stuff from the government. So that's where it's not you're not getting equal protection of the laws. Different people are getting different stuff based on whether or not they're homosexual or not. The court quoted the Loving v. Virginia case. That's the case that struck down laws against racial intermarriage. And it stated there, there can be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classifications violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. Indeed, it does. Different government treatment based on race. I agree with their point on this. Just like a different government treatment based on sex. 
is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. You can't do it. I don't see the due process violation. So if the court or the government, if the government doesn't recognize any marriage, like during most of the history of humanity, the problem is solved for everyone. The government recognition of marriage to provide certain benefits is to encourage or discourage by government carrot or stick certain behavior. Just let people marry without any government approval. No low-level clerk has to stamp a piece of paper for people to get married. No central planning is actually necessary. People can do this on their own. And that's the Equal Protection Clause. But the court goes on with the due process concept. Quote, to deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes, classification so directly subversive of the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment, is surely deprive all of state citizens of liberty without due process of law. This isn't as strong a case as I mentioned. Of course, they're using the racial parallel to compare it with the same-sex restrictions. Again, the government can't stop anyone from getting married. They can only stop giving you benefits. I mean, think about it. Hey, we're married. We're committed to one another forever. And our religion perhaps recognizes that commitment. No government denial of liberty has come into play. Two people have said we're married. The government only comes into play when it starts handing out different benefits to different people, which is an equal protection issue, not a due process one. Court goes on. Here are the marriage laws enforced by the respondents. And these are the government officials who aren't letting people get married. They're enforcing the laws. These marriage laws are, in essence, unequal. Same-sex couples are denied all the benefits afforded to opposite-sex couples. Exactly. But they're not denied a fundamental right. They can still get married without a state sanction. So that's some of the highlights and lowlights of the court's opinion in Obergefell and how you can avoid most of those problems. And let me just hit you with a few highlights from Scalia's dissent. He's one of four, if I remember. I counted him right. Scalia said, This practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine always accompanied, as it is today, by extravagant praise of liberty, robs the people of the most important liberty they asserted in the Declaration of Independence and won in the Revolution of 1776, the freedom to govern themselves. Another good line from Scalia in a dissent, he said, The opinion is couched in a style that is as pretentious as its content is egotistic. He also wrote, Of course, the opinion's showy profundities are often profoundly incoherent. And there you have it. Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court struck down any prohibitions on same-sex marriage, completely ignoring the basic fact that if government didn't recognize marriage at all like it didn't for most of history, and the government didn't hand out largesse based on marital status, there would be no constitutional issue at all. Again, libertarians have the right answer. Not only the right moral answer, but the right constitutional answer. This has been The Law, and I'm D.K. Williams. This was Episode 12, Obergefell v. Hodges. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holler at me with your comments. Twitter, at BlueCarp. Facebook.com, slash BlueCarp. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.